it should be headlined that firearm-related deaths are now, you know, at, at the top of what is um, responsible for death in kids. You know, with overtaking motor vehicle accidents, as we know that uh, some study in New England Journal of Medicine came out fairly recently. And um, you have to know what the drivers are in the community, and you've got to practice accordingly. Welcome to Unloading, a podcast created to share community solutions for gun violence in America. Unloading was created by Gun Violence Solutions of the American Medical Women's Association. I'm Kat, a pre-medical student in Chicago and assistant director of the American Medical Women's Association. And I'm Anorvi, a fourth-year medical student based in New York. And we're here to show you how individuals across America are responding to gun violence in their communities. Today we are joined by Dr. Dennis Quo. Dr. Quo is an academic pediatrician and division chief of general pediatrics at the University of Buffalo. He is also the medical director of primary care services at the John R. O'Shai Children's Hospital. Dr. Quo has provided care to children and adolescents directly exposed to gun violence. and is heavily involved in firearm advocacy efforts with the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Quo, first, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, this is an incredibly important topic, and I'm just really pleased to have that opportunity. So thanks for having me on today. Of course. So how did you become interested in the issue of gun violence as a public health issue, particularly as it relates to children? You know, I've always been interested in public health issues uh, for pediatrics. And, you know, as a clinician, I think I rapidly realized now, early in my training that everything we do in the clinical setting is really impacted by what goes on around us. Uh, something as simple as if you give somebody a set of instructions, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be carried out because of either anything from literacy to um, resources to transportation. And that's when you start to open up the world of where our kids and our families live. Uh, the issue of violence and the issue of trauma is you know, unfortunately, it's just everywhere. And it's, just, it's such a major issue pediatrics. I, it was when I was in training and it continues today. Uh, the issue of firearms and firearm prevention, uh, firearm injury prevention, you know, it's, it's all part and parcel of the work we do in uh, community pediatrics. But it is an issue that I think we all know about and our families, many of our families encounter some directly, some uh, indirectly, but it's, it's such a large issue. Uh, some of it's so very high profile, but uh, a lot of it just affects so many of our kids every day. And uh, you have to, if you want to practice pediatrics and understand those community drivers and social drivers to health, you have, you have to understand uh, firearms. Definitely. So as a pediatrician, how do you care for children that are directly exposed to firearms or those affected by gun violence? You know, you have to start by knowing the communities where your kids live in. Um, you know, we have kids who are more directly impacted, uh, whether it's uh, somebody that they know or whether they were a victim of firearm violence. Um, other kids, uh, they may not be as directly impacted, but you need to know the policies and the exposures and the differences in what they're exposed. There are kids that are directly involved because of what is in their communities. Uh, there were those that are impacted because of a combination of access to firearms and uh, mental health. And when we talk about firearm injury, you know, we have to think of not just the, the mass uh, shootings that are in the headlines, but 
there is a lot of suicide and suicide attempts that are involved with firearms. And, you know, it's not, it, 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 it should be headlines that firearm related deaths are now, you know, at, at the top of what is, um, you know, responsible for death and kids, you know, what's overtaking motor vehicle accidents, as we know that uh, some study in New England Journal of Medicine came out fairly recently. And um, you have to know what the drivers are in the community and you've got to practice accordingly. There was recently a mass shooting in Buffalo and it's been all over the news. Um, and it, in your community, are children aware typically of this level of gun violence? Do you ever have to talk to the children that come into your office about gun violence, about, you know, they might be in fear of walking in the street or what goes on in their neighborhood? It comes up. I mean, it absolutely comes up. The thing that I want to, uh, uh, folks to know about what happened in Buffalo, you know, we have a lot of families that live in the east side of Buffalo. One of our clinics is in the east side of Buffalo, and uh, there was a lot of very direct impact. And what we heard from our families and what we heard from our uh, community partners was that this is trauma. And it was on top of trauma because of so many of the policies uh, that caused uh, populations on the east side of Buffalo to be incredibly marginalized. You know, these yeah. were policies that were designed uh, with oppression and racism in mind, you know, dating back decades. And um, there was a lot of incredible strength in the community, but there's a lot of trauma in the community. So when we talk about trauma and firearm uh, violence, you know, we see the spectrum. You know, we have youth that were directly impacted by firearm violence, whether a witness or whether they were a uh, victim of firearm violence. But we need to uh, keep in mind that, you know, this is on an overlay of um, challenges that in a community. And so, you know, that when we talk about firearm violence, it has to be in the context of understanding your community. Right. Are there any organizations in your community or the East Buffalo, Buffalo community that you know um, provide services for children that have been traumatized due to community violence or shootings? There are a lot of resources uh, in the city of Buffalo. I think the challenge that we face in medicine is making sure that we're aware of them, that uh, one, of, one thing I'm really trying to get our group here mm -hmm. to, to be is, uh, you know, is not just familiar, but to be on first name, uh, like really on a first name basis with the, you know, the community partners. So we have community partners that work in everything from direct mental health counseling to mental health advocacy, to school advocacy, um, to direct uh, violence prevention in the community, uh, to our faith-based organizations, to organizations that work with our families that are refugees and immigrants. And you know, we, we put a lot of this under the heading of care coordination. I think it's just understanding that, you know, when you practice pediatrics, so much of pediatric health and pediatric care is really about the social drivers. And you have to know your partners in the community and not just refer to them, but also be on first name basis with them. Because then that helps us uh, connect folks with each other, it, it leads to better conversations, it leads to more directed questions, it leads to a safer space for families to be able to open up. Absolutely. Um, and earlier, Dr. Quo, you mentioned children getting access to, to their parents' firearms, and you mentioned suicide is a big problem. 
Does your job ever involve counseling parents on safe storage to prevent their children and adolescents from accessing firearms? You know, the counseling again for safe storage of firearms is part of the pediatric well child care visit. We can and do ask, uh, depending on the situation, we may get into longer conversations about it. Um, it is a sensitive topic, and so it's best delivered in a non-judgmental way as much as possible. And that is, of course, in the background of a lot of screening questions that we ask, you know, everything related to food insecurity, uh, to economics, to, uh, uh, you know, to, um, to rent, to environmental health. And uh, it can be challenging to ask all these questions. And, you know, when pediatrics, we are continually working at standardized ways to incorporate these into the well child care visit. Um, that said, uh, given the limitations of the time, uh, you know, it is something that we need to have in a toolbox, particularly when we can make a difference for one individual child in the family. We need to know uh, that it is part of what we need to be asking during a well child visit. Thank you. I just want to ask you, you said that you work with, um, you know, mental health partners in the community regarding, you know, safe storage and access to firearms. Do you ever work, like as a provider, do you ever work with law enforcement? That is uh, something that has not come up directly in our regular practice. Um, that is an area for opportunity. Uh, within my career, I have come across uh, law enforcement partners in various aspects of our clinical care for individuals, but that actually is an area where one of my uh, one of my providers actually recently brought that up that we need to be making those connections as well. Um, that is a definitely a, a good opportunity for us to understand not just uh, you know getting our law enforcement partners on a first name basis, but really understanding the drivers for what our law enforcement partners are facing. Thank you. So part of your work is working with children with disabilities um, in, in chronic care. Besides gun mortality statistics, the statistics for long-term disability and child survivors of gun violence is just as staggering. According to an analysis by Raza Therichalvam and Riddlemeyer, the risk of long-term disability is one in five in patients with intentional firearm injuries and one in 10 in those with unintentional firearm injuries. How are these children supported by the healthcare system? You know, the first thing I think of is that that's low, because I think when you think about a, an expansive definition of disability and impact, um, you know, I think we'd be kidding ourselves when we say that it doesn't impact every, every kid on some level that needs to be at least screened for address and, uh, you know, th something that may not be an issue or maybe uh, may present itself at age, say, age 10, it's very different. It can be very different by the time you're 15 or 17 or 18. Uh, sometimes for the better and sometimes not for the better. And so we're, you know, we need to be constantly screening and asking, but making it safe through relationships and the language you use and the, you know, the conditions you create in our clinic spaces for to be able to discuss these issues. As somebody who uh, directly practices, you know, uh, clinical practice, it's tough to try to get all this in into a, into a primary care visit, you know, and yet this is what impacts health uh, and wellness in pediatrics. And this is the challenge that we have in pediatrics is to be able to make this as 
that standard of reciprocal practice. And I, I find that all of my colleagues want to be able to embrace and discuss this and that this is our challenge is to make sure that we do have the ability to, to do it, to be able to provide for our kids in that way. How do you think we can do this moving forward? I know you said that, you know, you, you want to have these conversations and if time allotted for in a normal visit, you know, we could screen for these, these issues in these children. What do you see as kind of next steps in getting there? There needs to be a lot of discussion among uh, really the, the healthcare community about how we, uh, not only like we know what we need to do, um, but so much of healthcare, I think operationally, it's still on. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to be said about the way that we're paid, uh, for example, and the role of alternative payment models. That's a term. It's a buzzword, but it basically means that you know, instead of paying for volume, that you pay for value. Or another way of looking at it is that you pay for services and quality of care that's really delivered. And so a lot of this goes under areas of screening and counseling time and making sure that we have the system uh, properly assess and evaluate what we do, not just um, seeing patients uh, you know, for the sake of volume, which is the way that we've traditionally been paid. That is, I think, an essential but not the only step. Um, you know, the very nature of pediatric well child care, for example, it's, it's evolved from you know, trying to prevent a lot of infectious diseases to really embracing the social drivers, including uh, you know, education, special education needs and mental health and the impact of social drivers of health because we have so much more evidence now that that impacts long-term health outcomes. So it's not really just a good idea. Um, they impact health and wellness uh, in adulthood. And by addressing it early, um, we need to make sure that it's part of our culture and we need to make sure that the systems you know, are you know, fairly pay for these pay for us to be able to deliver these services. The other thing I'd like to talk about is just the culture of uh, having these spaces in pediatrics. I find that uh, pediatricians work best if they're part of a team. You know, that we see that uh, we are uh, not just individuals you know, providing one-on-one -on -one care, but that we are trained in and we work with our partners. You know, that we are just one part of a team that provides this comprehensive care to our patients and families. And with so many of our kids, you know, this is about uh, firearm violence, but there's just so many other social drivers that are all part of the team that they, nobody is trained in every single thing that really impacts the health and wellness of a child. And so that is part of the training and part of the culture that uh, we need to be uh, leading in uh, medicine and for, for me personally, pediatrics. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. That's I think it's really important to start that training, you know, earlier on rather than later. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned this, but since 2020, firearm-related injuries among children have risen by 29.5%, um, which is now overtaking motor vehicle crashes as a leading cause of death among children and adolescents. Notably, this increase in firearm-related mortality in children is more than twice of that as seen in the general U.S. population. So my question is, what do you think has accounted for this drastic rise? And why have we seen such a sudden increase in the past two years alone? I don't have a good answer. Um, I have some speculations and some thoughts. 
you know, I think the last two years has been incredibly tough on kids. Um, you know, the, the most obvious thing that happened over the last two years is that we had a pandemic, which drastically, drastically upended, you know, the system uh, for health and education and wellness for kids. Um, you combine that uh, with uh, a large number of firearms that are within uh, this country uh, and a patchwork of laws and policies, uh, depending on a community, um, a lot of trafficking of firearms across uh, jurisdictions that allow for proliferations of firearms. Um, and you've got a, you've got a mess. And you know, there is more research that needs to be done in this area. There were decades and you know, of uh, really just a paucity of research uh, on what was um, effectively a, a kind of a gag on the uh, Centers for Disease Control's uh, supporting firearm research. You know, that's, uh, you know, another public health uh, challenge that we had for many years is that um, we need to understand better the direct impact of policies and societal uh, laws and regulations that uh, have an impact on firearm prevention, you know, firearm injuring and death, pulling this together, and without really fully understanding which one is the most effective ones, um, you create a situation where these firearms are just generally accessible. Uh, you put together the challenging conditions that we had in pediatrics over the last two years, and um, I don't have any direct evidence for it, but I think you have to look at it in the context of it's been very challenging for children in the last two years. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for indulging that question. I know there's no, really, we don't know what's what caused the rise. Obviously, we have the pandemic, but no one has the answer. So thank, thank you for, uh, you know, giving your, your two cents on that. Yeah, that said, I do think it's unavoidable. I mean, the, the, the issue is that if you look at the access to firearms in the United States and you compare it not just between countries, but you look at uh, the the policies and the laws between states and communities. Um, it's it's pretty. It's it's there. There's a, such a wide difference, for example, in firearm deaths between states and even within communities. And uh, you know, in the last few years, we've had states and communities that have uh, generally tightened firearm laws and policies, and you've had states that loosened them. And I think that is going to be you know, kind of the, the basis for a lot of questions. But I think that we shouldn't pretend that there are no, we don't know anything about this. We know that um, people get access to guns in this country. So, you know, speaking about law and policy, we're talking just two days after President Biden signed into law this historic bipartisan gun bill, um, something that we haven't seen for decades. What components of this new law do you think will improve gun safety for our children? There's been some attention to the red flag protections. Um, there's also some attention to tightening the background checks for 18 to 21 year olds. And, you know, even so, 18 year olds are legally adults. Uh, they are. Uh, either just out of the pediatric healthcare system or they're still within the pediatric healthcare system. Um, any movement and any discussion is better than nothing. You know, it doesn't touch um, assault weapons, uh, high capacity magazines. You know, we need to better close the gun show loopholes. 
but I think anything is better than nothing. I mean, the fact that we got something, uh, you know, was, you know, Sandy Hook didn't do it on a federal level. Parkland didn't do it on a federal level at the start. You know, and I think that um, with regard to the, 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 the red flag protection, it's another tool that we have, um, but how we execute it, I think, is going to be the million-dollar question because it puts a lot of responsibility on those responders that are, you know, that that are that are tasked with the reporting. So we know that obviously law and policy play a major role in influencing gun safety, as we just discussed. But from a public health perspective, are there any public health measures that either have been implemented or can be put in place to improve gun safety? You know, one of the, the more prominent ones is uh, there was for a number of years a, uh, a, ban, a federal ban on assault weapons, you know, and um, there's some pretty good data that showed that, uh, you know, deaths from firearms, uh, you know, there's a pretty good correlation between when the federal assault ban weapon, uh, when the federal assault weapon ban was in place and when it expired. Uh, I don't know of, um, you know, any firearm safety advocates who are looking to completely uh, restrict the sale and possession of firearms. But there are steps that in the past have been effective. And one, one of them I would just point to is the assault weapon ban, federal assault weapon ban, and, uh, and limitations on high capacity magazines, because nobody needs that kind of firepower on a personal level. I know that you are involved in some advocacy efforts for gun violence prevention and gun violence solutions. Can you talk to us a little bit about what advocacy efforts you're currently involved in? You know, one advocacy effort is that, uh, you know, it, the medical societies, uh, and as you mentioned, I'm a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, at both the federal, uh, state, and chapter levels. And because of the, the laws that are in New York State, the very high-profile incident, you know, the, the massacre that we had in Buffalo in, you know, just one month ago, and a number of new laws that were passed to try to tighten up some of the uh, loopholes that allowed this individual to acquire the firearms that we as a group have to look at how it impacts us as pediatricians. Discussion that we have as practicing pediatricians, how we respond to it if we find an individual that under red flag laws that we may be responsible, for example, for um, screening and reporting this indivi- you know, these individuals. And these are not easy questions because you're, you know, we are mandated reporters, for example, for child abuse, but like, how do we handle something like this when it comes to firearms? Because that gets us a very dicey situation. Um, other areas of advocacy are just talking about it. You know, we, for example, you know, I am in a, within a teaching institution and, uh, you know, advocacy about public health issues are things that we uh, discuss and provide within our training programs, you know, for medical students and residents. Um, other areas of advocacy include discussing and making us available to op-eds, uh, you know, in newspapers, or making yourself available to the press in, you know, for pediatricians can work with their medical societies or their institutions to make themselves available for um, questions from the media. And that's just, those are some of the ways that I am involved with community advocacy. 
And uh, a lot of this is um, raising the profile of the issues that folks are available where we stand. As physicians, we have a voice and uh, we have a voice that is trusted and we need to use it. And, you know, we're trained in science. We're trained in the facts of what we know. We know the research, you know, we have the public health grounding. And, you know, what I tell folks is that there is room for research, there's room for discussion, but you at least have to have a baseline for understanding where we are. And there is actually a fair amount that we know about violence, about firearm violence. You're talking about your own uh, personal experience with advocacy. And I was wondering what advice would you give to those that may be interested in advocacy, but don't know where to start? I think it's important to be involved with your network and the community of colleagues. Uh, from the trainee and early career, uh, I'm always advising seeking out mentors that can connect you into networks and other colleagues of folks. You know, so much of our medical career is really based on relationships and um, uh, not just who you know, but also the networks of um, being introduced to um, others that really can open up your mind and your worldview. And, um, you know, there's, this, there's a lot of the standard uh, advice that's given, such as, you know, write an op-ed, which I agree that, uh, you know, we need to be writing about it, we need to be talking about it. But I think one of the things that, like, as I look back at my career and said, at some point, all of a sudden, I, I became like an expert in being able to discuss some of these things. Um, you know, as physicians, you're always experts. It's, it's incredible. It's a privilege to be a physician. It's a privilege to be able to have access to really just the most personal and most intimate uh, details of people's lives. You know, we see people at their, at their best, we see them at their, you know, at, at the low, lowest points. And it's a perspective that, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's a very important perspective to keep in mind about when we talk about like how like certain situations impact others' lives. Um, I do think that the training and the mentoring in things like public speaking, in interviews, uh, and talking points are incredibly important. You know, a lot of these things are offered in uh, training courses. Uh, you know, you can have mentors or uh, institutions can help you with these specific uh, topics. Uh, how to write an op-ed, how to do interviews, how to create your talking points. All of these things are trainable. Um, they, they don't just appear out of thin air. Uh, they can be mentored uh, within the appropriate network. But more than anything else, the medical community is actually a pretty tight community. And so I always encourage folks that, I mean, even cold Calling uh, somebody based on your interests and just saying, you know, hey, I really want to learn about what you do and how you get into those things. Um, we all like that. We, we invite that because, you know, I think all of us in a medical field are, are excited and happy and you know, are always too pleased to be able to talk with trainees and early career physicians about how we got from here to there and what we need to do. Thank you. So I have one final question. Um, so, of course, our, we talk about gun violence solutions in this podcast. So, of course, I have to ask it. How can physicians and those in the medical field play a larger role in shaping gun violence solutions? 
I think we just need to speak out more and more. You know, it's, we, there are talking points. The reality of today is that there are a lot of talking points that are, uh, that are out there that, uh, that I, I think rule a lot of our media. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't be afraid to talk about the issues. We can't be afraid to talk about how they impact our, our families, the patients and families that we take care of. Um, the voices of physicians in particular, because of what we do and what we see, uh, and what we're, what we're, you know, what we, you know, what, what we signed up to do, you know, the oaths that we took, um, we see the direct impacts and we need to be speaking out. We do, I think, also need to use our training, uh, our medical training, our scientific training uh, to be true to uh, the research and the facts and to be able to interpret the research that is there. A lot of research, of course, has limitations, but that doesn't mean you can't draw conclusions from them. You know, we can conduct the research, uh, we can advocate for the research, but I think more than anything else, we need to be willing to talk about it. And we need to do it in a scientifically sound way that maintains our credibility. Uh, But we also need to be doing this in the context of community partners and legislative and societal partners, because we have a voice, but we can't do it alone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It was excellent. Oh, my pleasure. Now, thank you for this opportunity. I think just something like a podcast or, you know, talking with um, in different venues and uh, media forms, that's, that's all part of it. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. <laughs>